Hi, and welcome to The Essential Pitch. This is the show which helps you make winning pitches and presentations so you can raise money, win business, and grow your confidence. And you'll learn from people who are doing it at the highest level. I'm David Beckett, pitch coach, TEDx speech coach, and I'm the founder of the Best 3 Minutes Pitch Methodology. And I believe that great ideas need a voice. For more help with creating your winning pitch, go to best3minutes.com. And this podcast is not sponsored. My goal is to share insights and learn more myself from the amazing people we have on the show. So hi, everybody, and I'd like to introduce you to David Batstone. And David is the creator of the Not For Sale campaign. He's the co-founder of Just Business, which invests in enterprises that deliver profitability and social and environmental impact. And he's a driving force behind the creation of companies such as the Rebel Drinks Company and more recently, the American Battery Metals Company. Now, I met David a couple of years ago. We were both speaking at an event in Macedonia and I did my pitch workshop and then I sat and listened to David. And I must say, I think he's one of the best speakers I've ever come across. I was really blown away by his story. Uh, So, David, I'm delighted to have you on the Essential Pitch podcast. With that introduction, I can't say that um, I'm a little bit intimidated what I'm going to say <laughs> next, but it was uh, it was terrific to meet you in Macedonia, unexpected to meet a common uh, traveler on this journey, and I uh, appreciate being on your podcast now. Great to have you. It kind of started with the Not For Sale campaign. You've impacted over 200,000 people, so it's an amazing story. It's a very um, uh, unusual uh, pathway, so I think it's important to tell the context uh, of a Silicon Valley venture capitalist um, discovering that there's human trafficking in his Northern California home area. Um, <clears throat> just be- stumbled into it, a restaurant I used to go to regularly, and discovered that over 500 young teenage girls had been trafficked into California for the purpose of uh, forced labor, human trafficking. And, you know, for some reason, um, David, I felt like I had to do something about it. I just couldn't walk away from it. And, mm. uh, but I did what so many well-intentioned people do. They open their heart and they shut down their brain. <laughs> and the reason for that is when we come across a, a, a problem like, say, climate change or um, uh, the, uh, AIDS or uh, malaria uh, or, or you know, extreme poverty, we don't use the same tools that we find successful in the other areas or sectors of our life. Um, right. As a Silicon Valley investor, I would find great capital. I'd find fantastic talent and cutting edge technology to uh, you know, build companies. But when it came to addressing a problem like human trafficking, I, I started a charity. And a charity is well-intentioned, but it doesn't scale and it doesn't solve problems. It, it, it helps address immediate concerns. So I love charities or NGOs, depending on your language, um, but I think they're insufficient. So I, for five years, I started a charity. And after five years, I discovered that I needed to um, switch the business model. I just turned it upside down. Right. And so Rebel was the first company I started as a way to marry the best of charity mission with uh, economic scalability. Right. And and maybe I can just uh, jump in. One thing that you said that really was like a light switch. See, I I coach a lot of people who are social entrepreneurs. And 
they're always challenged with this question of, you know, should I be pitching the business? Should I be pitching the impact? And you said something along the lines of why is it okay for companies that mess up the world to make as much money as they like? And why is it not allowed for a company that makes positive impact in the world to, to make money at the same time and then use that money to grow and scale? So that was really like a light switch. So maybe you can just expand a little bit on, uh, on that. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I'll, I'll tell a little anecdote, I think, that, that represents well the yeah. um, point that you're making. I was in uh, speaking in Sweden to uh, a gathering of high business executives, um, top com companies in, in Sweden. It was gathered by the royal family, the king and queen. Um, and I was the keynote speaker that day. But before I spoke, uh, I was uh, 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 someone who was there as a guest came up to me and he was a uh, senior leader in a, in a Swiss bank operating in, in the Nordic region and one of the top Swiss banks. And uh, he asked what I did. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm an investor and I start several companies and I explain my business model of making profit, but doing good in the world. And the first thing he said to me was, oh my gosh, I should introduce you to my uh, foundation arm. And I said, I don't want to talk to your foundation arm. I want to talk to your investors, right? So immediately, because I said I was doing good, I said I was doing profitable work. He immediately switched into his brain. This is something that you only fund with kind of foundation or charity giving. Right. Um, I'm looking forward to the day, David, when I go to an event like that. And I ask him what he does. And he says, well, he invests in energy and healthcare. And I go, oh, well, how are you doing good in the world? As an right. expectation, as a license for doing things. So flipping that model that we are suspicious. And I, I spent a lot of time in the Netherlands and, and you know, in the Nordic region. And there's always a suspicion if you're making money, you must be doing something bad. Right. Right. Yeah. Therefore, you need to have a purity code around doing good without making money and struggling and being in the Himalayas with no oxygen. You're just gasping for breath. Right. Then you must be doing good. And there's this, there's this weird dichotomy. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what the social entrepreneurs that I, I talk with, they struggle with. You know, they, they feel like if they're talking about uh, succeeding and growing and scaling, that people will think, oh, well, you, you don't need our help then. Whereas if we talk about typical tech and we talk about succeeding and growing and scaling, they say, great, fantastic, let's, let's put more fuel in it. This kind of flipping of the mindset feels like a, a big thing that we need to get over, actually. It, it feels like it's going to take quite some time, but it could happen. It's, it's, it's a strange, and it, you know, my story around the Swiss banker and then the other side, the, um, the social justice warrior, you're suspicious in both or you don't fit into either world. And so that's the challenge for the social entrepreneur um, is that somehow you have to uh, justify your your existence. Now, a lot of times, David, therefore, it's so weird. If I tell people, like, say, you know, Richard Branson says he's doing good in the world. People go, oh, my God, he's such amazing. He's a saint. Meanwhile, you're a social justice warrior and you're making money and doing well. Somehow, oh, my gosh, that guy is a little bit slimy. There's something wrong with him, right? So it's, it's funny. I typically tell people I'm a venture capitalist. Hmm. Later, I will share with them that my business model is bringing about uh, redesigning the world for people and planet. But if I start with being a um, social justice warrior, there's so many barriers to getting to the point where you can be a credible business leader 
So I start with a business leader and then they think, wow, he must be a saint. It's, I mean, it's a dichotomy. And, and I don't know how to address it. I'm just being honest that it's a, it's a challenge. But I think you, what you're dealing with, and this is one of the things I admired about the way you communicated back in Macedonia and all the research I've done since then, is that you, you're taking the way that people respond to this. You're listening to the audience and thinking, how do I get my message so it lands with them? It's not, here's a story I want to tell, deal with it. It's, I've got a story I want to tell. I've got to make this story land with these people. How do I do that? So it feels like you're trying to really tune into the way that these people think, meaning that and these people being the ones who can help you get close to your goal. Is that, is that a fair well, that's way? A, that's a very insightful comment because I, I do find that the challenge that, I mean, the, it, it, and this goes across startups, whether they're social enterprises or not, mm-hmm. that the startup founder wants to be the hero. They want right. to tell you what a great thing I'm doing. They want to convince you what a great thing I'm doing when that really doesn't matter. Your, your goal is to make your audience feel like the hero. Like, how do you make them feel like they're contributing to a better world or contributing to a better product or service? And right. so you're right. It's flipping the switch. It doesn't matter what I've done. It's how can I make you feel good and important and not in a slimy way, but in, a, in, a, in, a, in an authentic way, because I yeah. want you to be a part of my, my movement or my company. So you've been taking this story to various stages over the, the years. I mean, I don't know how many times you've you've taken disparate, different aspects of Not For Sale, which is addressing human trafficking, uh, Rebel, which is a drinks company with a mission, with a purpose. How, how did you get started with telling this story on stages? Well, it was out of necessity, I guess. When I first uh, started Not For Sale, I felt like I needed to um, tell the world that this thing of human trafficking was real and it was, mm. uh, uh, you know, it was prolific around the world. And it was hard for people to imagine that slavery still exists. So mm. I, you know, I went on a, a I think I went to, in the first couple of years of not for sale, um, I went to, uh, 200 cities a year in, in, in across the United States wow. and Europe to tell the story. And I would, you know, I get on stages at rotary clubs and, uh, religious communities and you know conferences, and I guess after a while, it's just you, you get very comfortable in front of people. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I like to tell. I'm, right now, I'm trying to convince one of my uh, female executives that she should be a CEO. She goes, "Well, I'm just not comfortable in front of people." I said, "Well, the only s- solution to that is just doing it. It's just getting <laughs> out there, and you know, and being on stage. And you know, uh, I, I think after a while, I, I encourage uh, entrepreneurs." Just uh, tell a story. Tell your story. Mm. And it's like I'm in a living room with four people and I'm just telling my story. Be that comfortable on stage. Yeah. I often recommend, recommend people to just say things out loud and then listen out. Am I telling things I would tell to a friend over coffee? Is this technical language? You know, is this, you know, are we going to deliver on this high level strategic plan or are we going to, are we saying we're going to got a great plan? We're going to make it happen and try to make it so that it, it connects with the people in a kind of a normal way, like you would that's, be. That's great advice. Yeah, that's great advice because it's, you know, if you think about it, your, com, your, your, your purpose is authentic communication, then you're not trying to look anything on stage except for yourself and tell the things that you're doing, the things that you believe, the things that you see. Uh, and people connect to that. I think they do, yeah. And uh, what were your first experience of public speaking? Did, did you ever get uh, training at school? I, I have a perception that 
in America, this is a, it's more of a focus, school and university. It's, it's not at all in, in, in Europe. Is, is that true or did you get oh, Absolutely. You know, from the time you go, to, when you're five years old and you go to school, part of the you know, I don't know, curriculum, but the thing that you do during the day at school is that we call show and tell. Right. And it's like, talk about your frog or talk about your favorite holiday with your family. And everyone has to get up in front of the classroom at, starting at the age of five and share that story. Um, I don't know if they still do it today, but it was a fantastic uh you know, th- training in a, in a way is to get in front of people and just and 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 talk. Absolutely, and I think uh, you know I, my daughter is is eight years old now, and uh, she's had a couple of events where she she speaks in front of the class, but it's like once every two or three months. So each time she does it, it's really a big thing. And there's this big preparation and it's a big moment and it's scary and so on. And it sounds like this is very regular for you. Well, and I, I think that's the key is to um, when you make it regular, and of course, you know, it's an advantage when you start when you're five or six, but yeah. even, you know, you're 25 or 26, just, yeah. uh, you know, the only way to get comfortable is by doing it. And it's, it's, you know, every time you do it, you get a little bit more comfortable. And so I know people feel like, well, I'm terrified. I, I'm confident that that will dissipate the more that you just practice, the more that you get in front of people. And when you uh, did, you've done two TEDx talks. Did you prepare differently for those talks or did you simply treat it like, okay, here's another opportunity to tell this story? Was there anything different that you did to prepare for those? You know, honestly, I didn't do anything differently. I, I, um, okay, but I will say this is that I know people who speak a lot, then they tend to get into a rote, uh, this is my speech, and they say the same thing. And I've, right. I won't mention any names, but I've heard great auditors, and I thought, oh, I can't wait to hear them. I said, wow, they just said the same thing I heard them say the last time I saw them on, online or something. Yeah. Um, and what I, I make it a discipline myself is to keep refreshing my story, to keep, to, so again, as when you see a friend you haven't seen for four months, you don't tell them the same stories they said four months ago, right? right? You update your your how you tell it, and this is how I keep myself entertained. Otherwise, I get into a, a rut, and right. I don't become creative and and, and hope I, and don't have uh, insights because everything I did is in the rearview mirror, not something that's looking forward. Right. I think that's a great advice. Sometimes founders tell me, yeah, I've told this story before. And so, okay, if if this is the story, then tell that story again. But if something's updated, then refresh it, take a step back and rethink what what, what is that story. And uh, yeah, giving yourself that energy is also a part of it, right? You, oh, you also need to feel fresh. Yeah, it's, it's you know, uh, it, it the important thing is your energy because your energy then elicits energy from your audience. And I, uh, um, I, I find that, you know, I, I was in um, an audience once in Eastern Europe and it's just culturally a very different, like, you know, stone cold and no, mm. no perceived interest. And I found I was really struggling because everything I was putting out, I wasn't getting back. And so later people said, Oh my gosh, that was so great. I go, really? I just felt like I didn't, you know, I wasn't connecting at all. And I felt my energy and I changed my enthusiasm because they weren't enthusiastic. So right. I do think the key is keeping yourself inspired. Yes. Yeah. And I think sometimes people worry about if the audience doesn't react as you expect them, because that could be a cultural difference. It could be 
yeah, it could be any number of reasons, but keeping your personal energy going for it, I think, yeah, yeah that's the key, right? Absolutely. And, and um, tell, tell me a little bit more about Rebel, because I remember you telling, so I think this is tapping into this topic of purpose. And, you know, this is a, I think it's a bit of a danger with the word purpose because it gets easily just tacked onto things. Whereas I think you're coming at it from a different point of view. You start with a purpose and then see how can you achieve that with a company. That's rather than here's a company and so what's our purpose? Oh, let's make it that. Yeah. It, that, that seems to be the way you approach Rebel. Can, can you tell a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Rebel was a cause looking for a company, uh, not right. a company looking for a cause. And uh, the reason I say that um, is I came to the point where I felt like we needed to come up with scalable uh, solutions. We were helping about 100 kids a year, not for sale, um, in Peru, Lima, in, in a shelter that we were running for kids. And, you know, we discovered a lot of these kids came from the Amazon area. They were from native communities that were very vulnerable to exploitation. So um, I said, okay, we need the best talent, right? It's not about, um, you know, finding people who are volunteers in, in the social sector, which are well-intentioned. But I want to I find – I want to engage – uh, the 50 most successful people I know, and I knew the founder of Twitter, I knew the founder of, of several big uh, U.S. tech companies, also uh, bankers and everything. I brought them together, and uh, I said, okay, help me find a solution. And we had a competition, like a shark tank. And the winning idea was, all right, this area of Peru has beautiful herbs like matcha, maca, uh, guaisana leaf. Uh, let's create economic platforms where we pay the communities to source these ingredients. We put them into a beverage. We tell the story of, of the people of the Amazon, and then we return um, revenue back to the communities. It sounds like a beautiful thing until Monday morning. You're, I wake up and I got to start a freaking beverage, right? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? All right. So what would I do if I'm in Silicon Valley? This is where my my venture capitalist Silicon Valley had met my social justice uh, mission. Right. I said, okay, if I was in Silicon Valley, I would find the best beverage maker in the world. All right. And so I did. I searched and you know found that individual who had won awards for the best beverage maker. Of course, Coca Cola wanted him. Uh, Unilever. They all wanted him to be you know their guy for the right. next beverage. Uh, so then I went to him and said, okay. Well, do I tell him I've got this, you know, good cause and I can't pay him what Coca-Cola can? I can't do that. <laughs> I'm going to offer him as much. I said, I'll match anything that Pepsi gives you, anything that Unilever gives you. I'll give you equity in the company. I'll, you'll be successful financially by doing good. Right. And and this guy, beverage maker, was like, really? I mean, I can create this really incredible beverage. And I go, yeah, of course. So he signed up. Okay, and then the next problem, how am I going to pay this guy what I just promised him, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, but what do you do if you're, uh, uh, if you're creating a, a Silicon Valley company? You go to investors and say, oh, my God, I've got the best beverage maker in the world. <laughs> and so it's, it, you see how it builds on itself. Yeah. But it goes the opposite direction when you are trying to create something that is not based on provable or credible um, market re reality. And so what happens, I, okay, I'm paying someone who um, has a better offer. So I end up with someone who's maybe a little less talented. Then investors won't invest in that person because, well, he hasn't done it before or she hasn't done it before. So it's a spiral upward or downward. Right. Um, 
And so I guess that was the, the, the philosophy behind Rebel. You know, fast forward six years, we're the you know, top-selling organic beverage in America. And uh, it was because of the fact we created a, such a high-quality product. But here's the key, David. Yeah. I set out to build a better beverage than Coca-Cola. Right. I didn't set out to build a charity drink that I'm going to hope you feel bad enough about human trafficking, you'll buy my beverage. Right. I set out to build the best company beverage in the world. And I think sometimes social enterprises don't have that aspiration. They, they, they try and lean into the uh, uh, um, maybe a, 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 a guilt or a, a, some reason that you'll buy my beverage, not because it's the best beverage. So right. if you're going to be a social enterprise, you don't get a pass on quality. Yeah. Make the best product you possibly can and, and have high aspirations. And, and I, I like your phrase, you know, think like a Silicon Valley investor. Think like if you were in the biggest tech company or starting with an ambition to be a tech company to take over the world. Yeah. Otherwise, if, if your aspiration is to be the best beverage on your block, you'll probably end up being the best beverage on your block, no further. Yeah. And, and yeah. so you only rise as high as your aspiration goes. Absolutely. Hey, and uh, you're on CNN at the moment. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's part of this story is being, being shared on CNN uh, five times a day. Um, how is that to see yourself on TV? I guess <laughs> you know, you're in Lisbon at the moment. You probably switch it on and have a look. It was very strange. I was in a, uh, I was in a gym in a hotel, and, I, and the TV was on. And I looked up, and there's my face looking at me. And, <laughs> oh my gosh, what's that? You know. <laughs> but also, it's um, it, it, what's really great about it is that it does connect me with uh, people who have seen uh, been part of my story for the last you know couple of decades, and then they reconnect by seeing it. And they go, "Oh my gosh, you're still doing this!" And I. I think the the longevity and persistence of following a purpose and a dream that 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 creates a, a level of, of trust and and um, uh, people want to be involved. Yeah, that consistency and yeah, longevity, long term commitment to the the cause it makes a lot of difference. I think it's hard because you know as an entrepreneur, you, you, you I call it there's a romance curve. You start mm. anything, a movement or a company or a nonprofit or whatever, and after six months, you know, you're just really loving it. People around you, your family, your friends, they all think it's great. They love your product or they love your cause. And then about six months, you hit a wall. Yeah. And you, get, you go, oh, my gosh, you know, it's like you start feeling rejection. You start feeling failure. You start. It's hard. I mean, it's like walking up. You hit, you hit a wall, and it's at that point you've got to get up on the next day and, and still do it. If you believe in it, if you're inspired about it and yeah. that's where your purpose uh, hits the road is, you know, can I keep pursuing this? And over time, uh, the people who can stay true to their purpose, they create credibility. Yeah. And I think delivering that message, you know, it seems to me that you're, you're taking an approach of, okay, do the stuff, do the work, get that work, rolling running get great people to get that work running and then go out there and keep telling that story so that this keeps kind of cycling through so that the work is reflected in the message that's what it takes that's what it takes david i it's really interesting we have a, a you know number of companies now over 10 companies but hmm. um 
what I find is that it takes at least seven touch points, like a CNN story, and then mm. a, um, a newspaper story or maybe a blog. Or It takes seven touch points for people to finally understand, oh, wow, Rebel's amazing. What a great story. Right. It, it just takes that repetition. So that's why you have to keep being fresh with telling the story so that people get another right. touch point that connects to them. That makes a lot of sense, I must say. Because I think sometimes people have the feeling like, this is the pitch. This is the one. It's it's this <laughs> investor, this time, this is the moment. And I, I very regularly tell people that actually a lot of funded startups, for example, they they have 50, 60 meetings before they have a, a, a final agreement, not with the same one, but to no, exactly. go through a journey. And secondly, that whole thing that it's rare that people make a decision based on one touch point and, uh, and your estimate of seven, that's, that's an interesting one. I'm going to keep that firmly in mind when I share that with, uh, with entrepreneurs in the future. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we have some, we have uh, some restaurants in Amsterdam you're familiar with called Dignita. And, yes. And we, again, we, it's, it's, it's a restaurants where women that come out of the commercial sex industry have an option to be a, a, a chef or a caterer yeah. or in our culinary school. And then we have four public facing restaurants. Uh, but I tell you, people who come into our restaurant, it takes them, you know, we, we've done surveys six or seven times before they realize the mission behind it, which is so, just cool for us because we don't want people to say, oh, I wonder which sex worker's cooking my omelet. You know, mm-hmm. We want to have this feeling, I'm in, this, this brunch is the best brunch in, in Amsterdam or in The Hague, right? So we want to have that, that feeling that you know, yeah. you're, you're in this. But once they learn the story, and we'd rather have them learn the story, we want them to stumble into the story mm-hmm. and the quality of what we're doing or the purpose, then they're our, our customer for life. Because yeah. now you've matched... I love this company. I love this product. And now, oh, I love their purpose. And it's marrying those two, which is so dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you're now involved in the American Battery Metals Company. And this is, if I understand rightly, this is about somehow the the heart and soul of uh, electronic mobility in, in the future, about electric m- mobility in the future. T- tell me a little bit about uh, that company. Yeah. You know, I know I think most people are familiar with Tesla. And, uh, of course, now VW and GM and Ford, everyone's moving electric. Um, yes. I think Ford just announced the other day after 2030, they're not making another combustible um, diesel engine or, or gas engine in right. Europe. Uh, right. So everything's moving electric. And, and the, you know, the, the, the couple of challenges with that, one is that Tesla themselves, the, the, the kind of the initiators of this, they have not found a way to deal with their electric batteries, the batteries that power these cars are called lithium ion uh, batteries. And uh, what, you know, they've been 98% of them go into a toxic dump. So one, it's an environmental disaster. Um, It also requires an enormous amount of metals, um, precious metals. I'll name four nickel, cobalt, magnemese, and lithium. And there's, you know, with the exponential curve of how many vehicles are going electric, we're going to be digging up every corner of the earth trying to fill, you know, fill all these batteries. So right. um, we decided to, uh, we were a mining company. I actually, I called from a CEO, an old friend of mine who said, you know, I took over this mining company. We have lithium in the ground. We have cobalt, but 
I want to tr- turn it into a green economy company. I want to be a recycling company. Would you know? Would you and your team at Just Business, which is my investment company, uh, would you help me become a people planet company where we engage communities, we help people in vulnerable areas of the world where mining's happening, and we switch the uh, uh, the flip the switch on how we source uh, the metals. And so today we are a recycling company. We recycle the batteries. We have a technology that can extract all those valuable metals and reuse them. They're in, infinitely recyclable, lithium, magnesium, nickel. So why dig up new um, scoops of earth when we can take the same metals and reuse them over and over again in the batteries? This feels like really uh, an unseen but extremely important part of the whole electric movement of that 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 shift of, of how we use energy oh 100 and this is what i'm really passionate about i haven't given up my passion for not for sale and and empowering people but i it's linked to how we deal with and redesign the environment going forward yeah. and so um my company's right now is this american battery company which is a a, a you know battery recycling and in Europe, I'm really focused on hydrogen production, hydrogen economy, hydrogen infrastructure. And so, it, again, each company becomes a little bit easier to create because you have investors who trust you. You have mm-hmm. executives who want to be a part of your team. And so we can iterate much more quickly to create new companies than, say, Rebel took us so long. It was convincing people that we could actually do this. But mm-hmm. now we're, you know, we have three companies simultaneously uh, running in this renewable energy space within nine months. And as you indicated, wow. it's not me. It's just finding the right people. It's finding the right executives. It's finding the right investors. I'm just like a circus master who brings <laughs> everyone in the same tent. Yeah. But you're also playing that part of, of communicating the story. And Oh, that's so critical. Yeah. Yeah. And I, what I get from this is also this idea of purpose you know, it doesn't. It doesn't need to be only about the purpose of that particular thing that you're working on. It can be a, on a on a higher level. Actually, you yes. can you can pick an area where you're you're focusing, but in the end, you're trying to improve you know, on one one level up from a product or a, a particular business. Absolutely, it started. Rebel started, or not for sale started with rescuing people. Rebel was okay, empowering people, and now you fast forward another 10 years it's about um redesigning the world you want to live in right right and so you're right it's that narrative becomes more expansive it can grow but only based on the credibility of your original narrative yeah yeah and i think that's the you know there's a great line that uh, if you're watching batman and the joker is being nice you you have to you have to start worrying because <laughs> the trust is not in somebody being nice. It's somebody being consistent. So the Joker is always nasty. So we need him to be nasty. Otherwise, we get nervous. <laughs> and, and, the, and the opposite is the truth. I um, love that. <laughs> you know, that if Batman is nasty, we, we get nervous. So <laughs> Batman's always good. We, we need this kind of consistent line from people that it, it takes a while if somebody is on the good side for us to really trust them believe in what they tell, believe in their purpose. But once it's established, and as you said, this longevity of delivering that message over a long period, it's easier to get people on board. It just, it, it needs a lot of building up to start off with. 
And, and Michael, uh, but David, I, I watch a lot of uh, what you do um, on social media and you're constantly talking about communication. Um, yeah. And I think that what I, uh, um, what I find about entrepreneurs is that they're not always good about telling the story of what they're doing. And, mm. and, and what, what I find most valuable is to say, here's a story of what I'm going to do. And yeah. then you follow that up with, hey, here's a story of what I've done based on what I said I was going to do. Yeah. And then this is what I'm going to do in the future based on what I'm doing. And yes. I think that constant evolving storytelling and people say, Hmm. Oh wow, that story is growing and evolving. My God, these people are actually doing what they say they're going to do. <laughs> so powerful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it doesn't um, matter if you have the best idea in the world, but if you can't wrap a story around it, it's going to be the best idea that no one ever heard. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to let that land for a moment. It's it's absolutely the the truth. You know, it's I think the challenge for entrepreneurs. Quite often, you know, I'm coaching people to pitch in, you know, a three-minute pitch competition, a five-minute event. Last week, it was a seven-minute pitch. And I think the challenge that people face is that when they're under time pressure, you know, they feel they've got to get a lot of information in there. And I think sometimes, you know, that just is how it is because there's criteria from jury, pitch competition juries and so on. But I think that that story of what actually drives you, what you're, what you're trying to achieve for the people that you're targeting, for your audience, for the people that you're, you're trying to help and support, that, that seems to be the, the, the most compelling part of any pitch, right? I like to think that I'm, you know, you know I ask people to talk about, imagine you're talking to your mother. Yeah. How would you explain something to your mother? That's yeah. where you can start. Because you could, I could, you know, if I tried to explain to my mother, what I'm doing with hydrogen infrastructure, you know, and we need to find a way to communicate it very clearly that, um, and my mother's very bright, but I, I, then I would let her, if she asks a deeper question, like, Oh, okay. That, then I go deeper. And then she yeah. asks another question. I go deeper, but we don't have to feel like we have to reveal every thing that we're doing or every insight yeah. that we have, but we, we put enough out there that then the curiosity is such that then people come back to us and then we can yeah. keep going deeper and deeper. And then it's a real dialogue, but um, it's, it, it's a misconception that I have to somehow convince all I need to do is persuade. Yeah. Get them to come to the next step. It, it has to be compelling. Yeah. It's all about being compelled, not being um, um, coerced or, or informed. Sure. Couple more questions. One about uh, you as an investor and listening to other people uh, pitching, and then I have to talk, ask you about something to do with you too. But let's talk about you as an investor first. Yeah, um, uh, the no. investor uh, part um, is I um, I do hear pitches all the time. Yeah, and um, I, I guess I I feel that these days there's so much noise in the marketplace. There's so much. Um, competition there's so much uh that you know most most ideas don't work so the you know the best thing that a entrepreneur can do when they come to me is say listen i already have tested this model with these potential customers right whether they're individual customers or companies this is the result that we got this is the number of companies or people who have stayed with us retention we call it 
this is how I'm going to get more customers. So it really, to me, is a matter not of is your idea great, but how are people responding to it in a way that's yeah. really tangible? And and again, it's something that is demonstrable, not something that I, I surveyed 40 people and they said they love my product. Well, yeah. what action have they taken that has demonstrated to you that really is something that they believe in? So right. I guess uh, it's hard work when you don't have capital that you want someone to pay you to prove your model. But the truth of the matter is you're probably not going to get much investment unless you find some demonstrable way to show that people, companies, customers are engaged with what you're doing. Absolutely. I think that's the best advice anybody can get is get it out there, get engaged with customers, get the flow running somehow, some way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the founder of LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman, had a great quote I use all the time. He says, if, you, um, if you're not embarrassed by the 1.0 release of your product, you yeah. release too late. Yeah. And I think it's just brilliant because be embarrassed. Be, be, you know, be, oh, damn, that's so imperfect. That's okay. It's yeah. better being out there and proving it and evolving and growing than it is waiting for the perfect moment to unleash your idea on the world. That's probably too late. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. Hey, um, after I met you in Macedonia, I, I went home a few weeks later, I was flicking through my, my DVD collection and CD collection, and I had this box set which I'd rarely opened of U2 Joshua Tree. And I, I took the book out, it's a beautiful uh, woven cover book, and I was folding through, and there's Bono, and there's uh, Daniel Lanois, Brian Eno, David Batstone, and I thought, that guy. <laughs> I saw him speak in Macedonia. How does that jump from talking about uh, not for sale to being in the special edition of the Joshua Tree with you two? How did that happen? Well, you know, it's actually funny because you mentioned the CNN piece. Uh, I got an email out of the blue from Bono the other day. He said, oh, my gosh, I just saw you on CNN. Great work. <laughs> I'm glad you're, you're still doing it. Um, so... Partly it's related to, uh, um, at the, as Joshua Tree was being created, uh, the, the music had been written, but not the lyrics. Uh, I met Bono, and I was working in um, economic development in Latin America, and, he and also human rights. He was really inspired and asked if he could come join me. Um, it, the band at the time was pretty upset with him because he said, Bono, you need to write the lyrics for this album because I... <laughs> I don't have any lyrics right now, and right. so <laughs> that experience was so dramatic for him. We went we went through El Salvador together, in Nicaragua, and uh, uh, you know at that 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 time there was civil wars going on and, and military dictatorships, and so for instance, uh, Bolt the Blue Sky is Bono and I in the village together in in uh, El Salvador. Um, uh, we were there um, uh, trying to protect people who are being bombed, uh, but you know that. That experience was, uh, you know, dramatic enough that wow. I've been fortunate enough over the years to continue having great relationships with artists who, you know, they're they're looking for um, ways to redesign the world as well. Yes, they they have a platform and can have a massive influence. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And my 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 kind of approach to them is I don't I don't need anything. I just I, I I'm and everyone's always wanting to get from them. This is a good advice for an entrepreneur too. Don't be asking people to give you stuff all the time. Hmm. Demonstrate your value and good things happen. Excellent. I think that's a great way to wrap up, David. 
And uh, I just want to say to you, I, you know, to be honest, I feel like you're the best kept secret of, of purpose and the future of entrepreneurship and best kept secret that's now on CNN five times a day. So hopefully that that uh, secret part becomes less uh, a part of the story. But it's it's really, yeah, I really want to tell you, I think it's amazing what you're working on and uh, your, your mindset and your mentality is really, I think it's the future of, uh, of entrepreneurship. So thank you so much for taking the time today and uh, and for the work you're doing. Great, David. Great to reconnect and hope to see you uh, over in Europe and Amsterdam sometime soon. That would be great. Have a great right. day. Thanks very much, David Batstone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you need more help with your pitch, go to best3minutes.com slash academy and you'll find our pitch masterclass with loads of practical tools and examples to help you make that winning pitch. You'll also find courses on presenting online, creating a video pitch, and managing your nerves. Thanks for listening. Give our show a rating and share your thoughts about this episode on Twitter. Our handle is at Best3Minutes. See you next time on The Essential Pitch.